the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. is full of things that are objectively pretty cool. It's got historic planes, really fast cars, and even an X-Wing starfighter from the 2019 movie Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. But the exhibit on exploring the moon has long been one of the museum's most popular. It was recently renovated, and the rooms are cavernous. Visitors can see tiny spacecraft like the ones animals first rode into space. You can see models of landers and even Neil Armstrong's actual spacesuit. But the last room has a big table at its center. Compared to the objects nearby, like a pair of moon boots and a vehicle astronauts drove across the surface of the moon, the table doesn't really catch the eye. But if you get closer, you can see that there's something really special in the table. Under pieces of protective glass are three rocks and what looks like some clumps of sand. And unlike pretty much everything else in the exhibit, they didn't just go to the moon. They're actually from the moon. Laura Ellison, who is visiting from Houston, Texas, described one of the samples for me. Oh, a Northasite. This one's really cool. They have it in a box looking at all the different angles. It's really beautiful. It's white and cream. Looks like it's a crystal almost. Ten-year-old Farah Perky was visiting from Virginia with her mom, Grace. Her favorite rock was labeled basalt. It has, like, a bunch of holes and stuff in it. And it's not, like, full. It's, like, has... Spongy? Yeah, spongy, basically. And Isaac Lammers from Colorado described a sample he'd heard of. It's called regolith. Uh, Regolith. I just always thought that was kind of a fun word. Um, But that's just, you know, like, lunar soil, essentially. Yeah. On six of the Apollo missions from 1969 to 1972, astronauts brought back over 800 pounds of rocks. Researchers tested those rocks for safety, they did experiments on them, and then NASA loaned a few of them to the Smithsonian to put on display at this museum. The rocks aren't as cool to look at. They helped scientists answer some of the big questions about the moon, including supporting the leading theory about how it formed. Now, scientists want to do something similar to unlock the secrets from another planet. Mars. This is the sound of NASA's Perseverance rover moving across the surface of Mars. Right now, the rover is collecting samples. It landed on Mars in 2021, and if all goes according to plan, those samples will arrive on Earth in 2033. To make that happen, NASA will have to launch two more spacecraft. One to land on the surface of Mars, recover the samples from Perseverance, and then launch back into space and another to meet the samples in orbit and bring them back to Earth. If it sounds complicated, that's because it is. But scientists are hoping these samples can help them answer some big questions about the history of Mars, the history of Earth, and the potential for life elsewhere in the universe. Bringing samples back can answer some questions that we have been unable to answer up till now. It'll help us understand certain things about the mineralogy. If we're thinking about sending humans to Mars in the future, it'll help us understand things about what the dust is like, right? Is it sharp and dangerous like we've seen with some lunar dust? Are there chemicals in there that may cause issues that we need to think about ameliorating? From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Alex Osola. Today, we speak with Lindsay Hayes, an astrobiologist at NASA and deputy lead scientist for the Mars Sample Return Mission. She'll tell us how the Mars Sample Return Program could help answer those questions and one stargazers have had for generations. Could life have existed on other planets? Stick around. 
WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. About half a mile from the Air and Space Museum, just off the National Mall in Washington, D.C., there's a nondescript, light-colored building. It takes up an entire block and looks like it could be an apartment building or maybe a hospital. Inside, there are rows of cubicles and a waiting room reminiscent of a doctor's office. But this building is NASA's headquarters. And this is where Lindsay Hayes works. Her office is decorated with about a dozen unique-looking rocks. This is a dinosaur bone. As well as a geological map of the Mars surface. I keep a little arrow magnet where the rover is. <laughs> After I stopped looking around, we sat down to chat. Lindsay Hayes, welcome to the Future of Everything. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so you're an astrobiologist, right? Yes. How do you even become an astrobiologist? What does that mean? <laughs> so astrobiology is really the study of the origin, evolution, and distribution of life throughout the universe. And using life on Earth, the one example of life as we know it, as a way to understand what are some of those characteristics of life that are capital U universal. The cool thing about astrobiology is that there is no one path to become an astrobiologist, right? To become an astrobiologist, you can be somebody who's really interested in how stars form and how planets form around stars. Or you can be somebody who's really interested in how evolution shapes organisms to live in extreme environments. Or you can be somebody who's a chemist who understands how salts and proteins and things like that work. And all of those people have pieces of knowledge that come together to form astrobiology. How'd you get interested in Mars specifically? Uh, well, you know, out of all of the planets in our solar system, Mars is the one that is sort of closest to the Earth, right? The surface of Mars is certainly colder and drier than the surface of our planet. There is actually an atmosphere on Mars. So there's a lot of similarities on modern Mars, but also... You know, there was a time in the past where the surface of Mars was very similar to the surface on this planet. And that time was actually early in the planet's history. Around the same time that life was starting on the Earth, the surface of Mars probably looked a lot like the surface of the Earth. And so... Mars is, in a lot of ways, our neighbor, our sister planet, and understanding what happened there. I mean, I think it's safe to say that there is not a robust ecosystem on the surface of Mars today, right? We would have seen evidence of that sort of robust ecosystem that we have on our planet today. And what happened? What's the difference there, right? Why does Mars look like it does today, whereas the Earth look like it does today? And the cool thing about Mars is that because Mars doesn't have plate tectonics, a lot of those rocks from that ancient period in its history are easily accessible on the surface of that planet. Tell me kind of broad strokes what it takes to get a sample from Mars to Earth. So the way we're doing it, it starts with the Perseverance rover, which is operating on the surface of Mars right now. The Perseverance rover, it's got some great technologies, and its job is to drill samples. Its job is to go make contextual measurements, look at the rocks around, select places to drill. As it drills, it goes into a sample tube. Um, it gets capped, and then it gets stored for later. 
one of the values of the Mars Sample Return Campaign is that we have this incredibly capable rover, the Perseverance rover, that are collecting these samples. And then we can also put the information in context of all of the measurements we've made from the orbiters and all of the measurements we've made in other places that help us sort of understand what's going on. So there's certainly more context that we can make on these samples than a lot of earlier missions could have done. What is the final number that the rover is expected to collect? We are capable of putting 30 samples into that orbiting sample container. If we get all 30 samples, every single tube has sample in it, we're looking at about a pound of rock. We've learned that not everything works exactly the way we want it to, but the value of each of these samples is so high that we really want to be able to bring back as many as we can. The main goal will be for the Perseverance rover to bring those samples to the sample retrieval lander. Now, the sample retrieval lander will land on the surface of Mars. The sample retrieval lander has an arm. The sample arm will pick up those samples. Once they're all loaded, everything gets closed up. The Mars Ascent Vehicle, or MAV, gets thrown into the air, which is my favorite part of all of this, and launches in midair and leaves the surface of the planet. Now, this is the first time we have ever launched off the surface of another planet. So this is a really big deal. Once the MAV gets that sample in orbit around Mars, it'll release that sample. The Earth Return Orbiter will capture that orbiting sample container, enclose it in a way for protection and all of that, and then the whole Earth Return Orbiter will come back to the Earth. Once it gets close to the Earth, it will release what is called the Earth Entry Vehicle, the EEV. And the EEV comes down through the Earth's atmosphere and will land in Utah, where it will then get picked up and will bring it to the sample retrieving facility, which is where we'll do the assessment to make sure that the samples are safe and understand what we've got. It's a complex process. There's a lot of steps to it. You know, the, the samples are expected to be back here through the various handoffs, etc., by 2033. Yep. Ten years away. What are you doing between now and then? Everything. <laughs> There's a lot to do. There's a lot of planning that goes into every mission. You have to make sure that all of those missions are communicating and everybody knows what everybody else is doing. You know, we also have to decide what this facility is going to look like and what's going to go into the facility and all of that kind of stuff. This sample retrieving facility that I guess doesn't yet exist in Utah? Well, we're looking at a number of different modalities to this facility. Right now, there are studies undergoing, could we look at a facility that already exists and essentially make modifications to it so that we could put the instruments that we need in there? Or there are these mobile units that you can dispatch to different places. Could we have that? Would that work? Would we put one or more of those together and create sort of a temporary facility? You know, how do we make sure that we're being very safe as we bring these samples back? What's on the checklist for what it needs to be? Must hold equipment, must have vacuum... Well, there's a lot of different things that this facility will need. So when you build a biosafety level four, BSL4 facility, you want to make sure that nothing from the inside gets out and nothing from the outside gets in, right? We have to make sure that not only does nothing get out from these samples, right? Because we're treating them, you know, at the highest level of safety until we understand what's there. But we also don't want to contaminate the sample with earth things, right? Because our earth has this robust biosphere and we're going to be measuring these samples for biosignatures. And so we want to make sure that nothing from our robust biosphere gets onto those samples. And so you have instrumentation, but you have to also have ways to make sure that the samples can interface with this instrumentation and make the measurements. We have to make sure that we can prepare those samples that we'll be saving for later for curation, that, you know, some things can be set aside for long-term preservation. There's a lot of different things that this facility will need. 
How do you assess whether it's safe for humans to be around the samples? So, like, for the lunar rocks, they, like, sprinkled dust on some plants and then had mice eat the plants. Is that still the state of the art? These are extremely precious samples. So we will not be doing those kinds of challenge tests, which is what we call those with these samples. In fact, we're working on what that sample safety assessment will look like. But essentially, no samples will be released from containment until they've either been deemed safe by the sample safety assessment or sterilized in some way. And so there may be samples that we are interested in that we're not going to look at biosignatures or that are not sensitive to those sterilization methods. Like we're just going to bake it at a really high temperature for a while and we're going to say that's a good method to sterilize it and we'll release those early. But we're working on those processes and those are not going to be something that just one person decides is the way. Once the samples are on Earth, the question is, what can scientists learn from studying them? And what will it mean if they discover signs of life? That's after the break. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. So it seems like it would take a lot to get samples from Mars to Earth. Why does NASA want to take this on? You know, sample return has been a high priority for decades at this point. And the reason for that is the instruments that you can put onto a rover are never going to be quite as good as the instruments that you can have in a lab here on the Earth. First of all, you have to select the instruments before you know what you're going to find. But you're never going to be able to know exactly the right instruments, or you're always going to wish you brought something else. There's also things like power and size and weight limitations on a rover. You have to get everything there. Think about it like when you travel, right? You never bring your best of any particular thing. You bring your travel version. It's going to be smaller. It's going to maybe not be as good, whatever. In a lab on the Earth, you can have the biggest instrument to measure the finest precision and accuracy on things. A thing like a synchrotron, right? A synchrotron can tell you a lot about the structure of a rock sample that you're looking at. But these are building-sized technology, right? You can't shrink that and put it on a rover. And so you really could make a lot of different analyses when you bring these samples back. So for the lunar samples, I mean, the intention was not to study every single one, right? Like some went on display to the public, some were for diplomacy, a few were used as gifts between heads of state, and I think one was even put in the stained glass window in the National Cathedral. Are all of these Mars samples intended for science or do they have some other purposes as well? You know, I think we're going to have some time to decide exactly what these samples are for. You know, we really view these samples as for the global community, right? These are not samples that are just intended for one person to sit on and do all of the measurements. When we think about scientific investigations that will be done, we're envisioning that as an open competition process. So if you are a scientist somewhere and you want to make this measurement, you will put in a proposal, just like all of the other scientists who are interested. So we are not envisioning these as just owned by one group of people. 
This is really for the global community. And, you know, I can't say at this point exactly what each piece, each grain will be, but we are getting to the point with science and technology and our understanding and making measurements here that individual grains can tell us a ton. What are some of the hypotheses that researchers are going to test on these samples? Two that I think are really important. One of them is related to age dating. Now, the way we understand the age of a lot of surfaces in our solar system is by looking at the number of craters that are on those surfaces. And we call that crater age dating. And we have specific age dates for the moon because we were able to go and use specific radioactive isotopes to get a precise date. But it would be really awesome if we could do that same thing with Mars because that would allow us to say this particular crater is exactly this old. And if we can do that, that allows us to get a much better sense of how old different things are on the surface of Mars. Another hypothesis is related to biosignature preservation. And of course, as an astrobiologist, this is one I'm particularly excited about. The reason that the Jezero crater was selected was because it has this fantastic delta. Jezero crater is where the Perseverance rover is collecting samples, right? So what does a delta on Mars look like? You know, a delta is a place where a river is flowing and enters a bigger body of water, right? It kind of slows down. It deposits a wide fan-like structure into a standing body of water. And the Jezero Delta is the delta that goes into the Jezero Crater. Where water once made that delta. Yep. And deltas are fantastic sites to look for biosignature because the best way to preserve things like fossils is to very quickly put them under sediment, right? And deltas, because of the nature of how they are formed, do that quick sedimentation. And so we think that the Jezero Delta, if there were biosignatures in this area at this time, would be a fantastic place to look for those. And so the hypothesis that we're looking to answer is, are there biosignatures that we can find and what do they look like? Evidence of life. Mm-hmm. Evidence of life. And biosignatures can take a range of forms, things like fossils, things like organic material. So what will that mean if there are biosignatures? Like, what are the implications of that potential finding? We know that Mars is not a place that today has a robust biosphere. But we know that there were places in the past where Mars was habitable. And it could have been a place where life originated and evolved. But the really interesting thing to me If we find signs of life on Mars, there's two things that could happen. One, these biosignatures could look a lot like things that we see in ancient life on this planet, right? And it could be that life on this planet and life on Mars are related, really distant cousins in some form, which would be really cool because it would mean that if you have a stellar system where there are multiple planets that are habitable at the same time, that there is some type of interchange, right? That life can move from one planet that's habitable to another planet that's habitable within the same system. And that's really interesting because that means that as planets sort of go through phases of habitability, life could live within a stellar system by moving between the planets could mean that more stellar systems that we see you know, have life in them than we would expect. The other possibility is that if we find some evidence of ancient life on Mars, it's something completely different. It's definitively not a cousin of ours. It's an entirely different origin of life. And in that case, that says that within a stellar system right next to each other, you can have two habitable planets and life is such a fundamental process of planetary systems that anytime there's habitability and enough time, life can originate. Which means that there may be other origins of life even within our solar system, right? Which also means that there could be a lot more life throughout the universe. And I think that either of those possibilities would be really, really interesting, but would tell us a lot about 
the hardiness of life and the capacity of life to be adaptable. That is so wild. (laughs) So cool. And this is why I love this. (laughs) How will the findings of the studies that will be done in those samples, whatever they may conclude, affect our understanding of the solar system and of life on Earth? So the things that we may be able to find from these samples will be able to tell us about the evolution of another planetary surface, right? Mars has undergone essentially a climate change. We have seen evidence that the surface of Mars was a lot wetter than it is today, was probably warmer, although there are some questions about that, but that has certainly changed over time. And so that can really help us understand how habitability changes over time on a planet. I think that in some ways it helps us understand what are some things that may happen on the Earth. But it also, I mean, you also have to sort of expand that, right? All of these planets change in different ways. And so the more we can explore different planetary surfaces, the more we can understand what changes happen to planetary surfaces, what things may look like on the Earth, what things may have looked like in the past, and what things may look like in the future. How about what the findings of these studies will change about future missions to Mars? Bringing samples back can answer some questions that we have been unable to answer up till now. So it'll help us understand certain things about the mineralogy. If we're thinking about sending humans to Mars in the future, it'll help us understand things about what the dust is like, right? Is it sharp and dangerous like we've seen with some lunar dust? Are there chemicals in there that may cause issues that we need to think about ameliorating? Can we use it as, you know, a protective environment? There are a lot of things that we're learning each time that we make a new measurement that can be applied to future measurements. This is a little far future but do you think Mars is the last stop in terms of sample return plans? I hope not. (laughs) There are a lot of other surfaces of other planets or even moons in our solar system that I'd love to see samples return from. You know, I think that each time we step a little bit further than somewhere we have gone before, it means that the next time that we try and do it, we know a little bit more. We know about where the potential pitfalls are. We know of the ways that have worked and what are the ways that are likely to continue to work. And it helps us do better the next time. And so, you know, Mars sample return, I hope, is just the first step in broader sample return. Let's go back to the day the samples come back. They're landing. Mm -hmm. Where are you? What are you doing? Oh, my goodness. Personally, I hope that I will be somewhere close by and being very excited. I know some of my colleagues are already jockeying to be on the truck that's going to collect the samples, but I'm not sure I want to be that close. I would love to be able to see it come down, to see the samples, to see the spacecraft that we've sent come back and land back on the planet. So some estimates say this project could cost upward of $5 billion. NASA's annual budget is about $32 billion. And I have to say, like, if you go to a cocktail party and you say you work at NASA, are people like, why are we spending so much money on this? Like, is that a reaction you get? And what do you say to those people? Usually not right away, Um, but it's a good question, right? NASA operates on taxpayer money. The amount of things we can do with the amount of money that we have, I think, is remarkable. The other thing is, it's not like when we say this particular mission is going to cost X billion dollars. We are putting that money into a rocket and just launching it in space. We are spending every single one of those dollars here on Earth right? We are buying materials. We are paying people to build things. We are paying people for their thoughts and their work and their time and their effort to help build these things. And then finally, to me, I think there's something to be said about the excitement that NASA brings to people, really the world round. And I think that that is invaluable. 
everybody gets bogged down by spreadsheets or whatever it is. But to be able to take a step back every once in a while and be like, yeah, but we're going to bring samples back from Mars. That's just so cool. Lindsay Hayes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Alex Osala. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. Jessica Fenton and Michael Laval are our sound designers. And Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Editorial support was provided by Falana Patterson. Like the show? Tell your friends and leave a five-star review on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening. <laughs>